Okay. Good morning, Renew Church. Uh, let's do what we always do. Can we put the question up here? And let's uh, break up into groups of two or three, maybe even four if you want, and actually answer this. Can you share what comes to mind when you think about the death of Jesus on the cross, his crucifixion? So let's break up right now and let's get into it. Can we do that right now? Thank you. Okay, everyone, if we can wrap up the talking. So great to be able to share with one another. Thank you so much for doing that. The title of my message this morning is God's Plan of Salvation. God's Plan of Salvation. If you're taking notes, we have a lot of uh, great note takers and appreciate you guys. If you're taking notes, the message is God's Plan of Salvation. And I'm going to read actually from Matthew chapter 16 and verse 21. It says, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. So here we see in chapter 16 that Jesus begins the process of continually explaining to his disciples the plan of salvation. And then in Matthew chapter 17, if we could turn there, in verse 22, we see a chapter later that Jesus reminds them again. And when they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day he will be raised to life. And the disciples were filled with grief. We are nearing the time of year, we call it, of course, Easter season, where we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. But before we get to that, we are on the road to look deeply into the death of Jesus, the crucifixion of Jesus the Messiah. And that's something that, of course, I wanted you guys to talk about before we get into the message. And I'm sure that many of you, as you express to one another uh, the crucifixion scene and the crucifixion that Jesus had to endure, I'm sure that many of you expressed difficulty, didn't you? You expressed feeling uncomfortable, even traumatic, as it were, as we talk about this. And just like the disciples, this reality can fill us with grief. Now, why do we want to talk about this? And you might ask, why must we study and ponder and meditate and focus on this horrific event in the life of Jesus? Why can't we just focus on the miracles? Why can't we focus on Jesus holding the little children in his arms? Why can't we focus on the resurrection? Why do we have to talk about the life and the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? Well, this morning what I'd like to do is I would like to take this passage, the passages we just looked at, and look at it from a theological perspective. And my desire is that the theological perspective will bring not only an appreciation for what Jesus did on the cross, but also that it would be a great encouragement to you, that you would glory in the cross. So not that you would be filled with grief like the disciples before they understood the plan of salvation, but we as his disciples now after the plan of salvation, that we could say, thank God for the cross. Can I get an amen? And we're going to look at that this morning. So, I've got some good news for you, and I've got some bad news for you. Which one do you want to hear first? Of course, it's always the bad news, right? Now, a few weeks ago, we studied the wrath of God in Matthew's gospel, and we said that God is angry with sin. 
Remember that God is angry. And he's angry because he's a just God. And he has a right to be angry with sin wherever he finds it. And remember we said that it's because it's the right expression of his justice. And not only this, but we studied that God has a right to perfectly punish sin wherever he finds it. Not only this, but that God is angry because he finds it in every man and every woman. All of mankind is under the anger and the wrath of God because of our sin. And that he will judge every sin from the greatest atrocity to the smallest motive. He is, remember we studied this, the perfect accountant that will not allow one item to slip by his attention. That he is the perfect detective that doggedly pursues the lawbreaker to the nth degree. That he is the perfect district attorney who builds an airtight case against man and woman for their sins. That he is the perfect judge who will punish sin wherever he finds it. Justice is blind and God will punish sin. And we said that mankind suppresses the knowledge of this God. Mankind doesn't want to think about this God because this God is too horrific, too traumatic. This God and the reality of this God doesn't fill us with joy. It fills us with terror. And so what we do is we fashion our own gods, don't we? We fashion a user-friendly God that's friendlier, that's nicer, that's more accommodating. And we fashion this to the detriment of the reality of the knowledge of God. And we suppress, remember we talked about this, the knowledge of God. But we cannot continue to pretend that he doesn't exist because the Bible tells us that there is a time coming when we will have to face this God. And this is where the bad news comes into play because we cannot make ourselves, no matter how much we try, we cannot make ourselves right with God. I remember giving this message, and one guy actually approached me and said, you know, that was a traumatic message that you gave. And praise God, you're right. It's very traumatic. It's a traumatic truth because of the fall, because of our brokenness. This is truly bad news. Now, do you want to hear the good news this morning? Can I get an amen? Amen. amen. I want to share this with you, but I want to share it with you in light of a true story of a man who lived in the 16th century. We'll call him Martin. Now, Martin was one of the greatest minds of his day. He was studying to be a lawyer. He was an up-and-coming uh, bright star. And in studying, uh, he, caught, he was caught in a storm, and a li lightning struck very close to him, and he fell off his horse, and he ne nearly died. When he got home that day, he began to review his life in light of eternity. And through intense introspection, he realized something very important that life is short, and that one day he will have to face God. And so he decided to give his life to God. And in that culture and in that time, uh, the greatest thing that you could do was to give your life as a monk in a monastery. And so he decided to do this, but not just any monastery. He was hardcore. He found the oldest, strictest, most holy, quote, order that he could find. And his view that is, if I just do this, then surely this will make me right with God. Now, again, he was a keen mind, and so in the monastery, they made him a scholar. So his job was to study the Bible 24-7, and he was to 
translate it. He was to teach it. He was just to immerse himself in scriptures. And as he did this, he found that the Bible presented God is a perfectly just, perfectly holy God who will judge the world one day. See, Martin understood the truth that God hates sin and will punish all godlessness and wickedness of mankind. And this produced in him an amazingly strong anxiety, a great anxiety because as he looked at his own life, all he saw was sin. And so his quest then, because he was a very driven man, was to be holy. His desire was to remedy the sinfulness that he had. And so you know what he did? He prayed incessantly, long, drawn-out prayers for days at a time. And with the prayer, he also fasted so much, so long, that historians said that he permanently damaged his body. He went on pilgrimages to holy sites. He venerated saints. He gave to charities. He served the community tirelessly. He even went to Rome, which at the time was the holiest site in that culture, and he climbed the steps of St. Peter's on his hands and knees, kissing each step and praying a prayer. He practiced the extreme discipline of flagellation or self-mortification where he would whip his body every time an illicit thought entered his mind. He entered confessional every day for several hours a day, confessing every sin that was committed by him, no matter how minute. There's stories where he would uh, leave confessional after confessing and then think, oh, there's a sin I forgot, and would go back into confessional to confess it. And the priests who gave the confessional were so irritated. They said, Martin, only come in here when you have, give, when you have committed a, a substantial sin. To which he would respond, isn't every sin in the sight of God substantial? You see, the more he tried to make himself right with God, the more he saw his own sin. And it vexed him so much that the head of his order came to see him, to see how he was doing, and asked him, don't you love God? And Martin said, love God? I hate God because all I see is this angry judge. How is the gospel good news if I must stand before a perfectly holy, perfectly just, and angry judge? How am I to stand before this awesome God on that day? Let me ask you, and he asked the head of his order, who will save me from God? And it was at this time that he came to study the book of Romans. And I want to invite you, if you want to do this, uh, to turn to Romans chapter 5. You don't have to. We have it up here, if we could show it. And I want you to hear the good news this morning. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, here Martin came to understand what this was all about. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if, when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? And it was at this that real peace flooded Martin Luther's soul. All his fears and anxieties and terrors melted away. It was in his striving to be righteous before God that Luther found no peace. 
But it was in God's gift of righteousness that Martin Luther would finally know peace. Isn't that beautiful? It was in his striving to be righteous that there was no peace. But it was in God's gift of righteousness that he would truly know peace. And it was here that Luther wrote his famous words, Gott hielt mich über die Halle, bis ich seine Gnade lernte. God held me over the very pit of hell until I learned his grace. You see, the good news is that God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. And that while we were unrighteous, God in his grace sent his perfect righteousness, Jesus, to die for us. God loves sinners in that while we were still his enemies, he sent his gracious gift, Jesus, to be our savior. You see, God engineered his plan of salvation for us. He planned it. He prepared it. He initiated it. He executed it. All because God loves us. Can I get an amen? I want you to see this. The cross is God's gracious gift to us. Have you ever thought about it that way? Luther says, Den koit zu finden ist gon Gnade zu finden. To find the cross is to find God's grace. You see, the cross is God's gracious gift to us. This terrible instrument used by the Romans to torture their victims to death was used by God to save the world. This vehicle of hate was transformed as a vehicle of love. And that's why when we come to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, as we draw near to Good Friday, that's why it's so good. And I delight in the crucifixion of Jesus because it is a demonstration of God's love. Romans 5.8, look at it, it says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So how is the crucifixion a demonstration of God's love? Romans 5.9 continues and it says, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? So the question is, how are we saved from God's wrath through Jesus? And the answer is, in that we are justified through Jesus' blood. Justified is a beautiful theological word. It means to declare righteous. That God declares us righteous not because of us, because we're sinful, because we're broken because we cannot produce good in and of ourselves. But God declares us righteous because of Jesus' righteous sacrifice for us. How does this work? How is the cross a demonstration of God's love? Because, and if you're taking notes, it is at the cross that God's holiness was satisfied. That's the theological word propitiation. At the cross, of Jesus, God's holiness was satisfied. Say the word propitiation with me. Propitiation. Say it one more time. That sounds beautiful. We want to look at a picture of propitiation that's found in the Old Testament. In Leviticus chapter 16, God does something that he had never done with humankind in the history of the world. He decides to dwell with a nation. And he decides to dwell with Israel during their wilderness wanderings. Remember when Israel was saved from Egypt and they were traveling through the wilderness? God said, you're going to have to pitch tents and you're going to have to move from place to place. You're going to have to live in mobile homes, okay? And so imagine Israel being just a massive mobile home park. And here God says, 
listen, make a mobile home for me because I'm going to travel with you. And that mobile home was the tabernacle. Uh, here's an artist's rendering of the tabernacle. That was G- oh, excuse me, God's mobile home. Okay, But as a reminder of God's holiness and man's sinfulness, uh, and, and, and as a reminder that uh, God, uh, in living with sinful man, there had to be requirements, there was an army of priests. And if you look over there, uh, you see an army of priests, a mob of priests, always continually making sacrifices. One sacrifice after another, different sacrifices throughout that time. But there was one day every year that the holiest sacrifice was given. It was given on a day called Yom Kippur. How many of you have Jewish friends? You know what that is. Would you raise your hand? Okay, some of you do, right? You've heard that term before, Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur literally means covering day. Yom is day. Kippur is a covering. And it was on this day that every priest who was doing the work of uh, this um, would, 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 would really be an extreme of working hard. But on this day, only one high priest, and that was the high priest, was allowed to enter the Holy of Holies. And that's kind of an artist rendering of that room called the Holy of Holies, okay? That was a place, it, it was really interesting that the priest could, high priest could only come once a year. Now, if you look at it, you see this kind of ornate curtain, right? You see a barrier. It was actually a curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the entire tabernacle. And it was, get this, 90 feet high, 30 feet wide, and a foot thick. And it was seamless. That means it was all created out of one material. Imagine a 90 feet uh, foot high, 30 feet wide, foot thick, seamless curtain, Right? Imagine going to Pottery Barn or Williams-Sonoma and buying something like this. How monstrous it would be. But it was meant to be a formidable barrier. And it was to make the declaration that no one was to enter here. And that no priest in doing their responsibilities could accidentally find themselves in the Holy of Holies. It was completely separate from everywhere else. Why was that? Because in the Holy of Holies is where God's presence concentrated. It was a picture of the throne room of God. There was really only one piece of furniture that was found in the Holy of Holies. If you look at it right now, it was the Ark of the Covenant. It was the Ark. And that was the symbol of the throne of God. So that on Yom Kippur, covering day, the priest would come in and he would actually take two goats. And I have two goats with me right now. It's from my daughter's uh, collection, okay? So don't tell her anything, okay? I quickly took it over here. Two goats, okay? She has a lot of stuffed animals. And so what the priest would do is on Yom Kippur, he would take the one goat, the white coat goat, okay? We'll call him pro for propitiation. He took that one goat, and he would slit the throat. If my daughter could see me doing this, she would freak out. But slit the throat of that one goat, and all that blood would pour into a basin, And here, the high priest would confess the sins of the people of Israel on this dead goat, right? And the blood that was there. And he would take that, he would go into right here where you see the ark, and he would sprinkle it on top of the ark. It is what we call the mercy seat. And from within the ark, this is interesting, in the ark was the Ten Commandments, the original Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments is a picture of God's expressed character, who he is. It was what he desired the people of Israel to live by. Now think about it this way. When God looked down into that mobile home park, he noticed the Israelites breaking the commandments. 
And no matter how hard they tried, right, they still broke God's commands because they're fallen, they're sinful. And it angered God because of who he is, a just and altogether holy God. So when God saw them sinning, it angered him. But on Yom Kippur, when God saw the blood sprinkled on that mercy seat, that blood covered over the righteous laws that had been broken for that year. You see, God was temporarily satisfied and pushed back his wrath another year. And so every year, the same ritual had to be done year after year after year because the book of Hebrews says the blood of bulls and goats could never take away sin. It only pushed it back. So here, this begs the question, why did God prescribe the blood of animals to appease his wrath? I don't mean to sound irreverent, but was God just sadistic? Did he just love to see blood everywhere and animals torn apart? Was God eccentric? Was one of his fetishes to see animals destroyed? What was the reason why God prescribed the blood of animals to appease his wrath? And here's the answer. That covering day foreshadowed something greater. You see, in God's plan, Jesus Christ was that perfect high priest. And he went, and when he died on the cross, he came into the holy place, not with some temporary sacrifice, but with his own perfect blood to cover sins and to satisfy God's holiness. All the Old Testament sacrifices, imperfect to take away sin, foreshadowed the greatest sacrifice. That Jesus, as that perfect Lamb of God, takes away the sin of the world not for a hundred years, not for a thousand years, not for a million years, but for all eternity. Could I get an amen? That Jesus and this picture of Jesus is that he is the propitiatory goat. You know, it's interesting that on the cross, if we look in John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30, that Jesus' last words, and the Bible says, when he had seen everything was finished, his last words before he died was, it is finished. And many of us, when we read that, we misunderstand that we think that Jesus is just announcing his mortality, that he's telling everybody that's watching, I'm going to die now, and then he dies, right? That's how some of us think. But this was not it, because the word that was used, it is finished, is the word tetelestai, which means my mission is completed. See, that brings on a whole new uh, idea to it is finished. My mission is completed. And this was a common word used in the first century. It was, a use, it was a word used by a servant when he came back home from the end of the day. Every assignment his master gave him was completed. And tired but satisfied, he would sigh, Tetelestai, it is finished. I've completed all that my master has assigned me to do. It's the word used by the artist when he paints the last stroke of his masterpiece. Everything he has painstakingly created is done. And he proudly steps back and exclaims, Tetelestai, it's finished. I've completed the work of my masterpiece. It's the word used by the athlete when he competes a long, grueling marathon, like the LA Marathon today. Every checkpoint is passed, every step endured. Exhausted but exhilarated, he would raise his hands and say, Tetelestai, it is finished. I've completed the race that is set before me. It is used by the soldier after a brutal, hard-fought battle. He has successfully defeated his enemy, and he places his foot on the neck of his foe and roars, Tetelestai, it's finished. I came, I fought, I conquered. It's the word used by the merchant as he puts down the last payment on his property. 
He has paid it in full. The building and the lot are his. And he confidently proclaims to all around, to Telestai, it's finished. This is my property. It's all mine. And I paid for it in full. When Jesus died on the cross and cried out, it is finished, to Telestai, he completed all of those pictures. You see, Jesus was God's servant who obediently executed all the duties required. Philippians 2.8 said that Jesus likened himself to a servant and humbled himself, became obedient to death, even the death of the cross. Jesus performs the Father's will by becoming the sacrifice for the sins of the world. Jesus was that prophetic artist who fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies and foreshadowings and pictures concerning himself And he performed the masterpiece of salvation for us. Jesus was that champion athlete who finished the race that was set before him. Jesus finished the work of salvation flawlessly so that we might benefit. Jesus was that victorious soldier who defeated sin, death, and hell. And Jesus conquered them by the power of the cross and made a public public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by his crucifixion. Jesus was the redeemer merchant who went into the slave market of sin and he put down the full payment of his blood and bought us all up from slavery to freedom. Because of the cross, we are princesses, princes and princesses of the Most High God. Can I get an amen? You see, all those pictures are what Jesus Christ did in his death and sacrifice on the cross. So here's the question I have. Was God the Father forever satisfied in his Son? It's beautiful to understand the pictures, but practically speaking, was God forever satisfied by his son? I want to give you something very beautiful. I want us, if we could, to leave Mount Calvary where Jesus died. And at the same time, I want you to visit Mount Moriah where that mobile home turned into a permanent home, where the tabernacle turned into the temple and was built here, all the dimensions were the same, only it was now a per- permanent home on Mount Moriah. And I want you to notice this. If you, if you want to turn there, you can. But when we read this passage, I don't think we can ever be the same. In Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 and 51, when Jesus cried out again in a loud voice, and from the gospel accounts, we know it was to Telestai. That's what he said. He gave up his spirit. Now imagine this in verse 51. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. You see, when Jesus proclaimed, my mission is completed on Mount Calvary, on Mount Moriah, this 90 foot high, 30 feet wide, foot thick, seamless curtain was torn from top to bottom. The gospel writers want you to be absolutely clear that God ripped this curtain. Amen? To signify there is now no separation because of his son. It wasn't from bottom to top. It wasn't an army of men ah, trying to rip this amazing curtain. No, God was the one from top to bottom saying, we don't need this anymore. Because God is forever satisfied in the sacrifice of his son. There is now no wrath. There is now no separation. Only reconciliation in Jesus Christ. You've been forgiven and you've been saved. The gospel writer says it this way in Romans 5, 9. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? You see, we are declared righteous 
when we receive Jesus Christ's sacrifice. I want you to see that the other notes here, right? And it's the same ceremony on Yom Kippur. I want you to see that the other goat was placed in the center of Israel. And all national sins were transferred onto that goat. That goat became accursed with all of the sins of the nation of Israel for that year. You know what they called it in the Bible? They called it the scapegoat. Doesn't that, isn't that what we use today? We use that term today. What does it mean? It means that we place all of the blame. We place all of the sins upon this. And then we are now uh, in a position where we, we, are, we have a clean slate. Listen, the scapegoat was led out of the camp into the wilderness to be seen no more. And the symbol was that God had forgiven and let go the sins for that year because the sins were transferred upon the scapegoat. You know where I'm going with this, right? Jesus is the scapegoat. He is the only human being who ever lived a perfect life because he was the God-man. He could live perfectly because he was God, and he could be our sacrifice because he was perfect man. And so at the cross, God placed all of our sins upon this perfect sacrifice. You know, the Bible says that he cried out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why did he yell that out? Is because he was cursed with the sin of all of humanity, and God could not even look upon the face of God the Son. You see, God's infinite justice that we had just talked about, his perfect wrath towards sin was poured out upon Jesus at the cross. Isaiah 53 Isaiah prophesied thousands of years before Jesus ever came onto the scene, but he was wounded for our sins. He was bruised for our sins. The punishment that brought us peace was placed upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep, we've gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the sins of all of us. 2 Corinthians 5.1 says, But God made Jesus to be sin for us, so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Does that stir your hearts this morning? Does that give you a passion for what the Lord has done? God hates sin, but he loves the sinner. Let me continue with the text in Romans 5, verse 10. For if, for if when we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Verse 11. We rejoice in God through Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. You see, God is gracious. He has provided a way to be reconciled to him. And it is through Jesus and his sacrifice on the cross. It is through Jesus' crucifixion that God becomes both just and justifier. And that's the beauty of it. Martin Luther asked the head of his order, how can we escape the justice of God? How will we escape the wrath of God? Who will save me from God? After Martin Luther understood the beauty of the gospel, do you know what he said? God will save me from God. Amen? That's the power of the atonement. Martin Luther, in his song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, writes in the answers the very question that he asked before he became saved. In the second stanza, he writes, Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who this may be? 
Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, eternal rest, his name, from age to age the same. And he, not we, but he must win our battle. You see, we cannot win our battle. We are fallen. We're broken. We're sinners. And that is why it is so important that Jesus Christ came to this earth for us. But there are so many today who believe, if I just follow the golden rule, if I sincerely do good things, if I strive to obey and be more religious in my religion, if I have a good life, then I'll be good with God. And you know what they do? They think the law is their means of salvation. They think the law will make them right with God. But do you know what the law is? The law is only a mirror. Have you thought about that before? It's only a mirror to show you what you look like. The law reveals your fallenness, your brokenness, your sinful condition, but it cannot remedy it. The law reveals it, but it can't remedy it. Let me give you an illustration. This is a corny one, but I love this illustration. Imagine you are in the office of Dr. Law, okay? Sounds like a Chinese doctor, right? Dr. Law, Moses D. Law, okay? And you come to him, you say, Dr. Law, I don't know what's wrong with me. I have a serious problem. My eyes are so lustful, and I want so bad pornography and everything involved with lust. My ears love to listen to gossip and grumbling and trashy stories. My mouth cuts down and causes dissension. It curses. It bears false witness. It divides people. Right? My mind is just filled with all kinds of evil all the time. My hands are quick to do wrong things. My feet rush into the wrong places. Dr. Law, what's wrong with me? And Dr. Law says, your prognosis is that you have a bad heart. Your heart is perverse and diseased. Your heart is toxic beyond compare. And given your state, it is terminal. The rest are only symptoms of the root cause. You have a bad heart, and if you allow your heart to continue, it will only lead you to death. So Dr. Law's prognosis is you need a, heart, you need a new heart. You need a heart transplant. So desperate, you cry out to Dr. Law, please save me, Dr. Law. Give me a new heart. And you know what Dr. Law says to you? I can't. I'm not able to. I'm not capable. There's nothing I can do. But before he can finish, you leave because you're so distraught. And so you run to alternative medicine. You run to the doctor of religion, the doctor of self-help, the doctor of philosophy, the doctor of psychology, the doctor of science, and you look for a way that you can be healed of your heart, and they prescribe worthless herbs. They tell you that everything is okay, that everybody is like that, it doesn't matter, and it can't change a bad heart. So you run back to Dr. Law, and you say, is there nothing I can do to be saved? And you know what Dr. Law says? Well, there is something you can do. But you left before I could tell you. I work for a perfect cardiologist. I work for the great physician. His name is Dr. Grace. You know where I'm going, right? Is Jesus. And he's the only person who can create and transplant a new heart. And you know what? The good news is he will do it free of charge, and he will do it right now. But the question I have for you is, are you ready to trust Dr. Grace to save you? And I want you to picture Dr. Law taking you by the hand and, putting, and taking you into the office of Dr. Grace.
Matthew chapter 17, verse 22, and when they came together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and on the third day, he will be raised to life. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment? Why did I spend time sharing a theological message with you? Is because the reality of this message hits at the heart of every single one of us. How many of you here right now, nobody's looking, it's just me. In the quietness of your own heart, you would say, you know what? I have never come to the place where I have trusted in Jesus to save me. I know I have a bad heart. And I know that Jesus can save me from this. But I've never gone into his office. I've never come to him. I've always relied on the law, which cannot save. Religion that cannot do anything for me. But here today, I want to raise my hand and I want to testify that I need Dr. Grace in my life. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you. Would you raise your hand right now? No one looking. I just want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. After the service, please come see me. Come see Pastor Wilson. You can see any of us as leadership, and we'd love to share with you the power of God to salvation for everyone that believes. For those of you that are Christians, how do you take this truth? Are you grateful for it? Are you excited about it? Father God, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would pierce our hearts. Wherever we are, we pray that we would respond to the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said.